2 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 23 and then go all the way through verse 11 of chapter 2. Last week was a section of, of this letter where Paul started to defend himself, defending his sincerity against people who thought of him as a fraud, partly because he didn't follow through on travel plans that he made with them. And in this passage, he tells us why he didn't come as he planned to. But underneath all this talk of travel plans and where he, what he meant to do and what he actually ended up doing, there's another theme, and it's a theme we've got to lock in on. It's a theme that has a huge effect on the kind of community we're pray, prayerfully building together here in our church. It has a huge effect on our ability to make it till, till uh, Christ comes again or until we're called home. Our ability to stay in faith over the long haul in our lives will be directly affected by our willingness as a community to take up what Paul puts in front of us this morning, and it's a bit uncomfortable. It's a bit uncomfortable for some of you, at least. What Paul talks about in the the passage we're going to consider this morning is, is a responsibility that we have to correct one another when we've gone astray. Maybe because something in our lives is explicitly sinful, something we're taking up, something we're doing that God has clearly said we shouldn't do. Maybe because we're walking in a relationship with each other, we notice some sort of pattern of behavior in one of us that that seems unwise, seems hurtful to the person that we're caring about. The Bible's full of language calling on people of faith to care enough about each other pay close enough attention to one another that they're willing to say hard things to one another when it's necessary. It's uncomfortable because some of us, it seems too risky. It's difficult to to say hard things to one another at all. For others of us, It'll be uncomfortable this morning because it's difficult for us to do it well. We don't have trouble actually confronting things. We have trouble confronting things in a way that's winsome and gracious and full of mercy. For all of us, though, the ability to offer correction to each other in a way that's healthy, the Bible presents as a difference between life and death. This is how God keeps his children walking in faith. This is how he keeps us recognizing our need for grace and mercy. This is how he keeps us repenting of sin that holds us back from joy. He does it when we're willing to correct one another. So what can we learn from what Paul says here about the healthy way to correct one another? That's the only question I want to answer this morning. Pretty straightforward. I want to look at Paul's description of his correction of his friends in Corinth. And his advice to them about what to do after the fact, after the correction has happened, about how to deal with the fallout of it. I want to look at at, at how Paul takes up the responsibility to correct and how he counsels them to deal with the fallout of correction to see what we can learn about our responsibility to offer correction or challenge or confrontation to one another in a way that's healthy and God-honoring and loving. That's what we're going to do this morning. I want to begin by reading the passage, though. I want to start in verse 23, read to verse 11. And I'm going to ask, of chapter 2, rather. And then I'm going to ask you to, to stand with me in honor of God's word while I do this. This is the word of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 23. 
But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I've pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is God's word. You can be seated. What can we learn from Paul about the healthy way to correct one another? That's our question for this morning. I want to give you four things. And we can learn from what Paul tells us about his own correction of his friends and about how he counsels them to deal with the aftermath. Four things we learn about a healthy way for us to take up our responsibility to correct one another in love. Here's the first thing we can learn. It's simple. Begin with empathy. We have to begin with empathy. Did you notice that that when Paul explains why he didn't make the visit that he planned to make, he points to the pain that he knew he'd cause them if he came. So remember the section, remember the context here. Paul's trying to explain himself. He had said he was going to come for a visit and then he didn't show. And they thought that meant he's a man who talks out of both sides of his mouth. He's just telling us what he wants, what, what he knows we want to hear, but then he doesn't follow through. He's not a man who can be trusted. And Paul's saying, no, I am sincere. I, 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 I say what I mean in the presence of God and towards you. Here's why I didn't come, actually. Now he tells us. He didn't want to cause them pain. It was to spare you, verse 23 says, that I didn't come to you. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says that he made up his mind not to make another painful visit to you. Now we're seeing something about the backstory here. He had come at one point and there was trouble. He doesn't tell us exactly what the trouble was, but something was not right in this community. And he had to say some hard things and he hurt the people that he loves. What he said caused them pain and he doesn't want more of that. What I want you to notice, though, is that it isn't just their pain that he's worried about. Did you see this? It isn't just their pain that he's worried about. Look at verse 2. If I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? Look at verse 3. I wrote so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from you. Paul is not just worried about the pain that he's causing his friends. Paul knows that when his friends hurt, he hurts. In their pain, from his correction of them, whatever it was about, he experienced pain. 
He goes on to talk about how their joy is his joy, his joy is their joy. Paul's describing a relationship with these people where they hurt and rejoice together, where they're identified with each other. They can't be hurting, and he's not hurting. They can't be happy, and he's not happy. His pain was attached to theirs. His joy attached to theirs. He was fully identified with them. And that's why when he, when he finally got around to sending a letter, instead of coming back to them, he decided to handle this correction more through a letter that would kind of soften, soften things a little bit, get them ready for him to come back and see them again. When he finally gets around to writing, verse 4 says, I wrote out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Maybe your parents told you that their punishment of you would be harder on them than it would be on you. I'm tempted to ask the kids in the room if that's something their parents say to them. It sounds pretty lame in the moment, to be honest. But as lame as it might sound when you're a kid on the hot seat, it's essentially what Paul is saying here. And in cases of healthy Christian correction, it'll be true. You should know, friends, you should know that the kind of correction we're called to give one another is going to feel like this. Like anguish. Like affliction. Many tears. It may involve sleepless nights, staring at the ceiling, wondering how to say what you need to say in a way that will get through. It will involve desperate prayer to God to help you get through and to protect the relationship when you have. There's a powerful warning built in here. Paul, in, in Paul's identification and his concern about his pain and their pain and his joy and their joy and the anguish and the affliction and the tears and all of this. There's a powerful warning here, especially for those of you to whom confrontation comes naturally. You can't offer correction as a Christian in a healthy way unless you are personally attached to the person you're correcting. There's a kind of correction that happens that depends on detachment, not attachment. There's a kind of correction that's pretty common, actually, that, 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 that depends on detachment, on, on making that person you're correcting into a kind of other that's very different from you, that actually helps you know who you are because you're not like them. That's the kind of correction that plays out on Facebook or through screaming into some sort of video blog or hammering out on some sort of comment section or whatever website or holding up signs, screaming at people who walk past you. That kind of correction is not what Paul's talking about here. That kind of correction depends on you not knowing and caring about the person that you're talking to. It depends on them being unknown to you, unnamed before you, unloved by you. There's a way to confront other people that actually highlights your detachment from them. Where you don't care to win them over. You're not trying to help them see something they don't. You're trying to take them down. It's combat. Not correction. The person on the receiving end of correction from Christians who take up Paul's work 
that person's got to know, the person on the receiving end has got to know that you're with them and you're for them and you're not trying to tear them down. So what Paul is talking about is something that doesn't come naturally to anybody. It should always be difficult. It should always be inconvenient and painful. If it's not, if it doesn't hurt you to do it, then it's probably you just firing off based on your personality. Taking it up too casually, maybe even pridefully. Rather than in a sanctified and Christ-honoring and loving and affectionate way. If it feels good to you to correct somebody, if it feels therapeutic almost, like a relief to tell it like it is and call somebody out for something, that's different from what Paul's talking about. First thing you need to know if you want to correct someone in a healthy way, based on Paul's model here, is that you've got to begin with empathy. You need to do the work in relationship to understand the person, to understand where they're coming from, to care for them, to even attach yourself to them, and then work from there. So don't rush in, in other words. But next thing we learn actually pushes to the other side. We can't shrink back from doing this work either. If we want to correct one another in a healthy way, we need to focus on love. This comes out in verse 4. So, so what we've said so far, Paul's words suggest that there's a genuine and appropriate fear. It's like a hesitancy to take up this work. That's good. That's healthy. That's appropriate, right? And that's not just a desire to please people. That's a, a genuine love and attachment to the person that you're going to say hard things to. But it's still tr- certainly true that people-pleasing can keep you from doing what's necessary from taking up the responsibility to help each other see the truth even when it causes pain. So Paul's also pushing back there. He's pushing back on those of us who are not confrontational by nature and who would shrink back from doing this work no matter what, who, who not just dread it, but actively hold back from it. Look what Paul writes in verse 4. He says, he's, he's told them that he's written to them out of affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, and he's written not to cause them pain. That's not his purpose. He doesn't want to hurt them. Why has he written then? Verse 4 says, to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Why correct, even if it's going to hurt them, even if it's going to hurt you? Because you love them. Correction is sometimes a powerful and a necessary way to love somebody. For Paul, loving them was not a reason to do nothing. Sometimes we can think that, right? That, that if we love someone, we should, we should hold back. We should give grace. We should assume the best and protect them from pain. No, Paul says that loving them was the reason to do the inconvenient and the painful thing that he dreaded doing. Sometimes, friends, the Bible's consistent on this. Sometimes, saying nothing is not affectionate or deferential or gracious. Sometimes it could be a death sentence. We have to focus on love. Love in the New Testament doesn't mean affirming everything about each other no matter what. It means doing what's best for each other. And sometimes that means causing pain. It's not a lot different from a parent who takes their kid to get vaccinated. That's one of the worst days of the year for my wife. When our boy's time comes up. When their number gets called, so to speak. We take them in. They know what's coming. They dread it for, for a long time. And they scream, they scream bloody murder when those shots go in. And that hurts us. 
we genuinely feel something when we see that happen. We dread it. We don't want to do it. Why do you do it? Because you love your child too much to let the temporary pain they feel from the shot protect, keep you from protecting them from deadly disease. Love them too much to let the pain that they're going to feel and that I'm going to feel keep me from doing the thing that's going to protect them. A couple years ago, we were doing a, a series through the wisdom literature here at Trinity. And I, one, of the, one of the things that stuck out to me most when we were looking at the book of Proverbs was how often Proverbs talks about wisdom coming from people willing to say hard things to each other. That wisdom comes from you seeking out the perspective of other people because you don't see everything you need to. And wisdom for your friends comes when you're willing to step up and actually say the thing to them that you need to say. One of the things that stuck out to me was in Proverbs chapter 27, verses 5 and 6. Here's what the the writer of Proverbs said. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. That's Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. The loving thing is honesty. Hidden love, or possibly a love that conceals, does no one any good. It's an enemy whose kisses are profuse. Who just tells you what you want to hear, always flattering you. They're not your friend. They're your enemy. A friend loves you too much for that. A friend sees what you may not see and tells you, not somebody else. A friend sees what's wrong with you and doesn't get frustrated or critical. They want to help you grow. So a friend knows it'll hurt and that's going to hurt the friend. But the wounds are faithful. There's a passage in this book that I read uh, sometimes with, with some friends. We just finished reading this passage a couple weeks ago with a group of guys. And, and a book by uh, Paul Tripp called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. There's a chapter in there. It's, a, it's, a ch- it's basically a book about Christian friendship, how to be faithful friends to each other, how to shape one another towards lives that honor Jesus. There's a, passage, there's a chapter in there that's about correcting one another, about speaking the truth in love. And there's this one passage in there that just cuts me to the heart every time I read it. It's not very long. It's just like one paragraph. But Tripp asks, when we don't correct one another, why is it? It's not usually because we love the person too much to go through with it, he says. It's usually because we love ourselves too much to go through with it. We love our convenience. And we know that the work of correcting people is messy work and time-consuming work and emotionally exhausting work. We love our standing in the eyes of other people. And we don't want to be seen as critical or difficult or harsh. We don't want them to be afraid of us. We love our relationships as they already are and we don't want to make them weird or awkward. We don't take up this work because we love ourselves more than we love the person who needs help. And because we love ourselves more than we love God, whose glory is at stake in this person's life and in our obedience to them. If we want to take up correction, like Paul did, in a way that's healthy for us and for the, for the community at, at large, then we'll need to focus on love. Because the time to correct someone is when it would be best for them. Focus on love for them and not love for ourselves. That's the second thing. There's a third thing we learn 
This is in the next verse, chapter 2, verse, or, yeah, chapter two, verse 5. If we want to correct one another in a healthy way that follows Paul's model, that honors Jesus rather than just serves our own interests, then we can't make it personal. Do not make it personal. In verse 5, Paul, Paul starts to talk about this specific instance where pain was caused and a correction had to be made. He doesn't tell us what it was. We actually don't know that much about the situation, the backstory here. He just says, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure to all of you. There's not a lot there. But most of the commentators that I read are pretty, pretty much on the same side about what, what probably lies behind this verse. It's probably a person who opposed Paul, who tried to win the community over to his side, who was sort of stirring up division and making a power play. It may have been something that went down when Paul was last there, that painful visit he talks about in chapter 2, verse 1. Maybe that's what, he, that's what was so painful about it. It may have been what he wrote them, that letter, uh, to, to, to follow up on, the letter that he mentions in verse 4. That he says, if anyone has caused pains, uh, is not, it's not that, he's, that he's, he's putting out there a hypothetical situation. It's actually just a, a style that Paul uses in some of his other letters when he's talking about somebody specific but doesn't necessarily want to name them or shame them. He'll say, if anyone, but they know, the community knows who it is that he's talking about, and he's got a specific idea in mind. Now, the main thing I want you to notice here, clearly there's plenty of stuff we don't know. We'd love to be able to piece this all together and figure out what exactly went down. We don't, we, just, we can't, not without a lot of speculation. The thing I want you to notice about it is that Paul is pulling himself out of the center. Did you see that? If anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but to all of you. There's plenty of references in this letter to show he was wronged. Paul really was hurt. He was pained by whatever it was that happened. There was a lot of agony for him in this relationship to, the, to a church that he'd given so much of himself to and loved so deeply. He, he was wronged. But when it comes to correction, he's taken himself out of the picture. It's not about him. He's shifting the spotlight off of what was done to him, to the effect on the community. In other words, he's not looking for vindication. He's not looking for a chance to show that he was right. He's not looking for somebody, anybody, to acknowledge his view of things. He is not the point. Now, there's a couple of ways that us making correction of one another personal can mess up the whole thing. The easy way to imagine it is if we make it personal and we're just chumming to each other as judges instead of as advocates. I just want to make you pay for the hurt you've caused me. That's not Christ honoring. That's not how Jesus relates to us. We can't ever come to each other as judges. We only ever come to each other as advocates. If we come to each other not feeling the other's pain but wanting them to pay something for my pain, just wanting justice to be served, that doesn't honor Jesus and it doesn't help the community. But I want to make sure you notice another way that making it personal could make this kind of correction impossible for us. This healthy way of pointing each other towards lives that honor Jesus, towards helping each other to see things in our lives that may not be honoring Jesus. There's a way to make it personal and just be judges and attack one another and try to make one another pay. That's pretty clear. We don't want to do that. But do you know, I think, that, I think that we could also make it personal, make it about us, 
and because it's personal, not offer correction at all. This is something I was convicted about this week, thinking about my own life and what this text means for me. Let me tell you what I mean. I think that I've covered up many of my own personal failures to confront friends under the banner of giving them the benefit of the doubt. And giving, the gra- giving grace is always important. Not making somebody pay for every time you don't like what they do or say, anytime they've hurt you. We, we shouldn't just pounce on people every time they say something that's hurtful. That's not Christ-honoring either. But giving grace has not been that hard for me. Giving correction has always been really hard for me. And I've held back from doing what God has called me to do as, as someone who loves friends who maybe need to be counseled differently by just saying, oh, I'm just going to eat it. I'm going to let that go. Friends, we don't want to paper over something that's a problem for the person we're in relationship with or a problem for other people in the community who are experiencing the same treatment that you're getting from this person. We don't want to paper over it just because you're willing to accept it. If whatever it is that needs correcting is more than a personal inconvenience to you, if it's a pattern in this person's life that's noticed not just by you but by other people, if it's hurting not just you but other people, or if it's affecting your relationship with the person, then it's worth talking about. Of course you extend grace. Of course you don't come like you've got them figured out. You don't assume that you're seeing things the way they are. Of course you don't pounce every time somebody says something that rubs you wrong. But at some point, friends, it's just making it about you. If you are willing to hold back from correcting them just because you're willing to forgive them. They need to be shown something about themselves. The community needs for them to be shown something about themselves. It's not about you. It's not personal. Another way that making it personal can keep you from doing something, keep you from correcting, is if you, if you think that you've got to be perfectly obedient in the way that they're disobedient before you can call them on their disobedience. That you've got to be some sort of standard for them before you have the right to speak to them about what's wrong. If you don't correct someone because you feel like you're a fraud, if you think that you have to be worthy of correcting someone else, then what that says is that you're the standard. That you're meeting the standard they're failing to meet. That what you want them to get out of this interaction is a life that's more like yours. It's not personal, though, Paul's saying. It's not about me. I'm nobody's standard. What Paul is doing, what he's going to explain even more in chapter 5 of this letter, what Paul is doing, the only thing he's trying to do is serve as an ambassador that connects people to Jesus. He's not their Lord, verse 24, said, I don't, we don't lord it over your faith. You obeying me is not the point. You becoming more like me, not the point. I'm nobody's standard. All I want for you is a life that's reconciled to Jesus, that's peaceful with him, that's reflecting something true about him to the other people that you live around. That's all I want. It's not about me. 
He's an ambassador and nothing more. We can't make it personal. If we're going to offer this kind of correction, it can't be about us. And here's the last thing I want you to notice. If we're going to offer each other correction that's healthy, that serves the interests of the community, that gets us all more ready for heaven, then we need to aim for healing. We need to always and only aim for healing. We correct in order to heal. This comes out in the last few verses uh, that I read, verses 6 to 11. This is where Paul's responding to the church's response to his letter. So apparently he wrote them a letter in which he called them out for not doing something they should have been doing. We don't know exactly what it was. Then, in verses 5 and 6, he's talking about someone who had been called out as a result of his letter, probably. The church received his letter. It must have convinced them. They've taken some action. And they've called out this guy who was causing trouble. And now, in verses 6 to 11, Paul's telling them how they should treat the man they've corrected. And he shows us that correction always aims at healing, always aims at acceptance and comfort and forgiveness. It's not about dismissing somebody who doesn't measure up. That is not Christian correction. It's not about dismissing somebody. It's always about recuperating somebody, about recuperating somebody that you love too much to leave where they are, somebody that you want as a friend and a partner and a contributor to the community. Look, look at verse 6. Paul says, For such a one, he's referring back to the guy he was talking about in verse 5, We don't know exactly what this guy did, but apparently the church has taken some action. He says, for such a one, this guy who caused pain to the community, this punishment by the majority is enough. What punishment by the majority? What does that mean? Probably it's a reference to something like Paul told this same church to do in in his first letter that we have to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 5, there's this passage where Paul is telling the church that they need to remove from the church a person whose sexual choices, sexual conduct was dishonoring to Jesus and defaming the nature of the church that they claimed they wanted to be part of. Paul there says that this person, for their own good and for the good of the community and for the good of the community's witness in the world needs to be removed from the church. He says in 1 Corinthians 5 that the purpose of that is to bring them to repentance. They need that jarring, confrontational approach in order to see themselves for who they are and to change. Well, Paul doesn't say that that's what's happened here, but punishment of the majority most people take to be something like that, that the majority of the church recognized the danger in this person's behavior and removed this person, removed something of their full friendship and welcome to this person until they changed. And now Paul is saying, That punishment did its work. He's saying, now, because that was enough, you want to restore this person. Turn to forgive the person. Comfort them. We don't want him overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. We don't want him swallowed up or engulfed by regret over what he's done. Reaffirm your love for him. I beg you, Paul says. Paul's end game was always this person being affirmed in the community with love. And he insists later on in verse 10 that he's doing that. He's setting them an example. Anyone whom you forgive, I forgive. What I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. I am not going to let what this guy did to me poison the community. 
He says in verse 11, I I know what Satan's up to. I know that he'd like to use this sort of festering resentment among different parties in the church to bring the church down. And I'm not going to let it happen. For your sake, as well as for the sake of this person who's offended, I forgive. There's no healthy community apart from repentance, apart from acknowledging we aren't what we need to be, from receiving this kind of correction from one another. But there's no healthy community in which anyone who's been corrected is then labeled as some sort of second-class member of the community. Paul, all he wants is for a full and complete restoration of this person so that they're comforted and loved and reminded that they belong. That's always the goal of our correction for each other. Whether it's as large scale as removing somebody from the church membership, like Paul talks about here, or the much, much, much more common, small scale, daily encouragement and challenge that we offer each other, whatever it is, whatever kind of correction we're talking about, is never about branding each other. It's always about bringing back comfort and peace and forgiveness. I think this forgiveness is so important to Paul because for him, everything about the community's life and relationships with each other is meant to mirror how God has loved us in Jesus and what has he done. Friends, the gospel, the message of the gospel is that even though we made ourselves God's enemies, by taking the things that he's given us and using them for our own ends rather than for his glory by complaining about what he hasn't given us despite the fact that he's been so good by behaving as if everything we have we have because of our own performance our own provision by making our though we have made ourselves God's enemy he has chosen to make peace with us and he's chosen not just to forgive us but to fully welcome us into his love to give us a new identity that's not marked by the things we did wrong, but to give us an identity that's marked by all that Jesus did right. He has given us Christ's identity through faith so that his goodness, his righteousness become our goodness and our righteousness. And we have no reason to be ashamed, no reason to fear, no reason to hold back. That's the gospel message. And Paul's saying, our relationships with each other got to look like that. Yes, that means we call each other to repentance sometimes. None of us is perfect. None of us is where we need to be. We won't grow unless other people help us to see that. But the point of it is always forgiveness and acceptance and comfort. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet and you're here this morning, I want you to know there is power in this value of forgiveness that Paul's putting in front of us. I... um. I know that sometimes this language about correction can cause you to kind of bow up a little bit, kind of make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. It's so easily abused, isn't it? Correction of one another. And in general, especially in our culture, maybe more than most places and most times, we resent the idea that anyone would ever speak into the life of somebody else, claim to have the right to evaluate choices made by another person. What you need to know, though, is that we have to acknowledge the possibility of us doing wrong before we can experience the freedom of forgiveness. 
We're among the most permissive, anything goes, relativistic societies in the world. But friends, that hasn't done anything about our shame problem, has it? Isn't it true that shame is still a huge problem in our society? The permissiveness that we've accepted hasn't done anything to protect us from shame. All it's done is hold us back from the power of forgiveness. Because forgiveness can only come when you acknowledge the wrong and are loved well by the one who decides not to define you by it. That's what Jesus offers you right here, this morning, right now. And for those of you who do believe in Jesus, who have taken up this work of trying to make our community one that brings him honor and glory, this sort of forgiveness that Paul's talking about here, it's got to be what the community offers too. Paul's called us, I think, implicitly by his model here. He's calling us to be willing to correct one another when it's necessary. But the kind of correction we're supposed to give to one another is never like some sort of scarlet A, if you know the scarlet letter. Some sort of scarlet A, this badge that somebody will wear as a corrected person. Some sort of factions in the church between those who give correction and those who receive correction. The fundamental baseline that that's necessary for any of us to become part of a, of a Christian church is an acknowledgement that we are not who we were supposed to be. We are not who we need to be now unless Jesus does something radical for us. The whole point of being in a church is recognizing you're not who you are, not who you want to be, not who you need to be on your own. We are leveled at the foot of the cross, all of us in desperate need of forgiveness. And we are leveled at the foot of the cross, all of us receiving forgiveness from Jesus for anything we've done that we're willing to own up to and acknowledge and accept his forgiveness for. Our community needs to be one where there is not some sort of permanent corrected status that people carry around with them but where correction leads leads to, to love and forgiveness and full acceptance. We want to be part of a culture, in other words. This is what you can pray for, and this is what you can do, what God gives you to do in your relationships. I want you thinking right now about your own relationships, specific ones where maybe you've been holding back from telling someone something you think they need to hear. I want you to pray for and take up responsibility for us becoming a culture in our church of people who give and receive feedback, who are willing to ask one another for it. Don't make your friends do the hard work of getting up the courage to overcome something resistant in them to tell you something you maybe don't notice. Invite them to. Ask them to ask you. Ask them to weigh in. We want to be a culture where it's just normal to give and receive feedback and love so that we're all repenting and we're all believing and we're all unified together in that. Not set apart. That's a fundamentally unnatural community. No one just stumbles into a community like this. It's going to take prayer and effort. And I want to begin that now.